Good evening. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to our study of Zechariah tonight, a new day for God's people. We're in session number 17 in Zechariah. Can you believe it's been that long we've been studying this? I, I think we've been in it longer than it took Zechariah to write it, probably. But anyway, it's good to see you tonight, and it's a great book, and I've really enjoyed the research and the study and, uh, and presenting it, and we're glad that you're here tonight. Tonight we're in chapter 13. There are only two chapters left and uh, tonight, and we're not ending next week, though. Next Wednesday night, we will not be having our midweek service on Wednesday. That's Vacation Bible School week, and so this will all be turned into... Uh, a kid zone, I guess you might say, and, and uh, so anyway, we will not be having midweek Bible study next Wednesday night, but then we'll pick up two weeks from tonight. Rather than ending then, chapter 14, the last chapter of Zechariah, has got way too many good things in it to c cover all of it in one week. It's 21 verses. Here's some really good things in there about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back some of the things that's going to happen around Jerusalem. One of the interesting things is what's going to happen to the Dead Sea. We'll talk about that, but it's too much in there to cover. I think you're going to find it fascinating, the last chapter. And so we'll take two weeks to cover that. So we'll actually end on June the 28th. So we have uh, only two chapters left, but it'll take us four weeks to cover those two chapters. But we are glad that you're here. Continue to pray for our mission teams. We have three of them that are out this week still. One in Tanzania, as I shared with you during the imprint. There have been 17 that have come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord as we're working with the Zoramo people. Never heard the name of Jesus. And one of the blessings of our church, we get to go take mission trips to a lot of different places where there are needs. But one of the missions trips we always take to, to unreached, unreached people groups, those who have never heard the name of Jesus before. Those are always blessings. And so we're thankful for what God's doing on the Tanzania trip. And then, of course, our students, the middle schoolers are in Austin, high schoolers are in Branson, Springfield, Missouri area, so continue to pray for them as well tonight. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin our study time. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to look at Zechariah. What a powerful book, eternal book that you've given to us because you saw fit to include it in your holy writ to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would Open up our hearts and minds as we study it. Teach us what you want us to know. May we have insight. Father, we thank you for what you've done through Christ. And we thank you also for what you will do through Christ at the last days. And so, God, as we look at both of those tonight, I pray that you would bless our time together. Those joining us online, I pray that you'd bless them as well as they study your word together with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, before we begin, it's quiz time. You knew that was coming, didn't you? We have seven questions tonight that are going to cover parts of all of Zechariah, not just from last week, but parts of all of it. See how well that you've kind of retained what we've studied for the last 17 weeks. So question number one, write these down or, or remember when you're in your mind if you want, and then we'll go back and, and look at the answers. First of all, how many visions did Zechariah have in the beginning of the book. How many total visions did Zechariah have at the beginning of the book? All right, question number two. Multiple choice, so you got a one out of three chance of getting this one. In what approximate year did Zechariah record his prophecy? 720 B.C., 620 B.C., or 520 B.C.? In what year did Zechariah record his prophecy, 720, 620, or 520 B.C.? 
Question number three, what were the names of the two leaders in Zechariah who led the Israelites back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? The names of the two men that were their leaders. One was a high priest, one was a civic leader, one was their religious leader, one was their political leader. But the names of the two men are mentioned in chapter 4. All right, question number four, what historical figure Fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9 as he marched to conquer the world. What historical figure fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 9 as he marched to conquer the world? All right, question number 5. What historical figure fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 11 as he marched through Jerusalem and conquered it? What historical figure fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 11 as he marched through Jerusalem and conquered it? Question number six. What, for what sin did God say he would judge the land of Israel in the last days? What sin Israel committed, God said he would judge the entire land because they committed it in the last days? And then question number seven, how will Jewish religious leaders in the last days respond to their crucifying Jesus, according to chapter 12? How will Jewish religious leaders in the last days respond to their having crucified Christ, according to chapter 12? Talked about that last Wednesday night. Okay, let's look at the answers. How many visions did Zechariah have? Eight, exactly right. Eight visions that are recorded in the first three chapters there. Question number two. In what approximate year did Zechariah record his prophecy? 720, 620, or 520? 520, absolutely. Around 520 B.C. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, they would have been in the 700s. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 600s. And then, of course, Zechariah in the 500s. Question number three. What were the names of the two leaders in Zechariah who led the Israelites in trying to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Joshua and Zerubbabel. There you go. Very good. Joshua was their priest. He was their religious leader. And Zerubbabel was their builder. He was their civic and their political leader. Question number four. What historical figure fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 9 as he marched to conquer the world? Alexander the Great, absolutely. These are way too easy for you, aren't they? Question number five, what historical figure fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 11 as he marched through Jerusalem and conquered it? Uh, Titus, absolutely, Roman emperor, actually became an emperor later on. He's a general at the time, Titus in 70 AD. Question number six, for what sin did God say he would judge the land of Israel in the last days? Rejecting Jesus as Messiah, exactly right, rejecting Jesus as the Christ, so therefore judgment would come upon all the land that's recorded in chapter 11. And then finally, chapter 12, how will Jewish religious leaders in the last days respond to their crucifying Jesus? Remorseful, absolutely, they will mourn, they will mourn as if their king was destroyed and uh, they will be remorseful for having crucified Christ. It's hard to imagine that taking place now, isn't it? But in the end times, that will take place. They will be remorseful for having crucified Christ. 
All right, hopefully you got all of those tonight. I'm sure you did. And those of you online, I'm sure you did as well. So we'll just move on to uh, chapter 11, uh, 13 rather tonight. Well, first of all, number uh, letter A on your outline, let's look at the overall context right quick and kind of put it in perspective of what we're going to look at tonight in chapter 13. If you remember Zechariah, 14 chapters, that's divided 1 through 8 and 9 through 14, two different sections. As we've talked about, 1 through 8, one appear to be one specific period of time, around 520 B.C. when the book is written. But the second portion, 9 through 14, appears to be a later time, even toward the last days when the world's going to end, 9 through 14. So, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at this last section of 9 through 14. Now, further subdivide 9 through 14. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 have one motif. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 have a, a different motif. So, now we're into the second section, which deals primarily chapters 12, 13, and 14. last three chapters of the book deal primarily with Jesus' first coming, which would have been 520 years after Zechariah wrote. Jesus' first coming, Christmas that we celebrate, his first coming, and his second coming. So both of these uh, uh, events are in view in the last three chapters of Zechariah. So tonight, we're going to see a little bit of Jesus' first coming and a little bit of his second coming, and they're intertwined. Now, just as a side note, there are some Bible scholars, you may run across this in some of your readings or maybe even hearing people teach Zechariah, there are a few who say that Jesus' second coming is not mentioned anywhere in Zechariah. There are a few that say that. I personally believe that his second coming is. There are several events that have not taken place that I don't see having taken place until the last days. The religious leaders being remorseful for crucifying Jesus is one of those. You really don't anticipate, you haven't seen it happen so far, and you don't anticipate it until the last days. So, just to let you know, there are some Bible scholars out there who say, Zechariah never mentions Jesus' second coming and what's going to take place at the end times. Most Bible scholars say that it does, and I'm one that I believe it does as well. So, chapter 13 tonight will have intertwined both his first coming and then, and, and then his second coming as well. So, that's just to throw that out there. Now, last week, chapter 12, you may remember, first of all, we talked about Jesus talked about uh, that, or the Lord said that in the last days, at the end times, nations will come against Jerusalem, try to, in the final battle, overtake it, but will not be able to do so. They will fall backwards like drunk men staggering and reeling. They will try to lift up Jerusalem like a rock and move it, and they'll hurt themselves like picking up a large stone. They'll not be able to do it. And then we saw at the last portion of chapter 12 last week how the national leaders of Israel will at the end times acknowledge in the last days that they were wrong in crucifying Jesus. And they will mourn. All of Israel will mourn in the last days for having crucified Christ. It will be like the days of 
Hadan Ramon, you might remember that from last week, of where King Josiah died. One of their favorite, probably their favorite king of all times, how they mourn his death. They will mourn by sexes, the men and the women, they will uh, mourn separately. They will mourn by tribes. Whenever Israel did that, that meant the mourning was deep, not just superficial. It was deep mourning. So it says at the end times, that is going to take place. Now we open to chapter 13 tonight. As chapter 13 opens, it appears to continue the thought of chapter 12. So, one Bible scholar said it's almost as if you have no chapter division there. It's really, it's really not, because chapter 12, like we talked about last week, intertwining his first and second coming, that same thought continues into chapter 12. So let's look at it. First of all, letter B on your outline, the Messiah will cleanse sin and uncleanness, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, for the Bible scholars who say that it's not talking about the end times anywhere in in Zechariah, one of the counter-arguments I would point out is the phrase, on that day, that appears 19 times in the last five chapters. 19, on that day, on that day. What day? The last day. In the New Testament, the phrase, day of the Lord, keeps coming up over and over to describe that last day. Day of the Lord, day of the Lord, day of the Lord. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the phrase on that day, on that day, on that day points to the final end of the world. So, there it is, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain that is opened up for Israel. What does that mean? Well, God will open a fountain for the complete spiritual cleansing for Israel, both cleansing from sin, both ritualistic cleansing, they will be clean, those that receive Christ. Now, the picture of God as a fountain is all throughout the Old Testament. God describes himself, pictured himself as a fountain. Uh, it's probably richest right here. But Song of Solomon talks about God being our lover and being our fountain. Uh, Deuteronomy 33 says he's a fountain of Jacob. Joel 3 talks about God as a fountain for his people. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, they have forsaken me as the source of their fountain. Jeremiah 17.13, God is the fountain of living waters to his people. So the image of God as a fountain is not, it's not uncommon. So for Zechariah's people to hear this, they would have thought, okay, we've heard that before. So God as a fountain for his people. But in this passage, it seems to go even a little deeper and a little richer. The wording that's used in the grammar means the fountain that will open and remain open for all times. So it doesn't just open for a while and close. It's a fountain that will open and, a, and remain open indefinite, perpetually, and always be there 
to cleanse for sins. What was the fountain? Jesus. He's Jesus. He is the fountain of cleansing. Remember what August Top Lady wrote? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's what he's talking about. It is a reference to Jesus' first coming and his death. All through the Old Testament, God was a fountain for his people. And now, 520 years after Zechariah wrote this, Jesus' blood would be a fountain for all of us that whenever we're plunged beneath it, our sins are forgiven and we're clean. What a beautiful picture. 1 John says it, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The cleansing was available when Jesus died. It's available now. It will always be available by faith for anybody who chooses it until the, until the time on earth is done. The fountain remains open perpetually and never stops. Spurgeon said, Notice he said it is a fountain, not a cistern, which is limited, not a reservoir that's limited, but a fountain, a fountain that will continually bubble up. Spurgeon went on to say about that fountain in his sermon preaching from this passage, he went on to say, why do people say they've sinned too much to come to Christ? That's like saying you need to bathe before you get into the fountain. The fountain's what cleanses you. So coming to Christ is your cleansing. Don't say I have to get my life cleaned up first before I come to Jesus. So don't bathe before you get in the fountain. Let the fountain cleanse you from everything that you have. And that's exactly what, what the picture is here, the fountain of Christ. The house of David has been opened up. But notice it is to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, folks, our sins and uncleanness have to be dealt with. You can't just let them go unforgiven. They must be put away, not excused, not condoned, not compromised. Something has to happen to your sins. Either you bear them and you go to hell, or Jesus' blood, the fountain, cleanses them and you have life. So verse 1 is a powerful verse. On that day, there will be a fountain opened up. The house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Go to letter C on your outline, verses 2 through 6. Then he says, idolatry will be cut off in Israel. Verse 2. And on that day, there he is talking about the last days again, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone, verse 3, again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you shall speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. 
Verse 4, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil for a man sold in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Okay, I know that's really confusing. Let me explain it. It's a really confusing passage, but, but listen to what he's saying. Starting in verse 2, Zechariah is saying, also in the last days, God has promised to remove from Israel idolatry, false prophets, and unclean spirits. He will remove them from the land for good. Now think about it. For all of Israel's history, all through the Old Testament, what were their problems? Idolatry. They worshiped the gods of the nations around them. False prophets who lied in the name of the Lord. And unclean spirits there that were at work undermining God's people. Those were always the problems in Israel and led them astray. And so God is saying at the last days, finally I will remove once and for all those three things from the land. And they will be remembered no more. You see, even the memory of our sin is taken away. Jews will no longer ascribe supernatural powers to mere objects, trees, and things that they worship. So demons and evil spirits will be bound during the end times. And that's exactly what we're told in Revelation. If you remember when we studied Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3, we saw in that passage that at the last days, at the end times, Satan is going to be chained in the abyss. And so it makes sense that at the last days, Zechariah says, unclean spirits and demons will be chained as well. Makes sense. If their leader is chained, they're chained. And so he is just basically going, going along with what Revelation chapter 20 tells us, that evil will be restrained from the land. Verse 3. There will be such a commitment of people in Israel to, to do what God wants to do at the last days that anyone who tries to be a false prophet will be rejected and even killed. Now, if you remember, if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 9, the punishment for a false prophet was death, Right? They were supposed to kill them to begin with. They didn't, but they were supposed to because these prophets would stand and lie in the name of the Lord. He's saying in the last days, Israel's not going to put up with it. Every prophet who tries to tell lies in the name of the Lord will immediately be rejected by people who say, you're a lying prophet, and they'll kill them. And even family members will reject them and kill them. Those who posed as prophets in the past will so fear being exposed that they'll deny being a false prophet that even mother and father will kill their own children who are false prophets. Did you notice that? If anyone again prophesies, his father and mother, verse 3, who bore him will say, you shall not live. You speak lies in the name of the Lord. And mother and father will pierce him through for being a false prophet. Boy, that's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? 
You mean to tell me that the land of Israel is going to be so attuned to what God wants them to do and what God wants to say to them, they're not going to put up with false prophecies at all? Right. They're not. So, it will be a dangerous situation for you to be a false prophet in that day. So much so, they'll try to hide their identity. And people will, they will not even look at verse 4. Every prophet will be ashamed of his vision, we prophesize. He'll not put on a hairy cloak. What does that mean? Well, prophets in the Old Testament would put on special clothing when they stood to prophesy. Usually it was the, it was the skin of, a, of, of some kind of animal. So if you saw someone stand, standing, speaking, and they're dressed in a hairy cloak, a garment, or garments made of skins of animals, you knew they were probably someone who was prophesying. But most of the false prophets were the ones that, that, that would stand in this attire. And so that's the reference in verse 4. Nobody will even dare put on the clothes of a prophet in those days because if they're found out, they know that they're going to be killed. And he says in verse 5, he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, sold in my youth. In other words, they'll say, I, 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 I'm, I was sold in slavery as a boy to a farmer. I've been on the farm my whole life. I'm not a prophet. I didn't go to the school of prophets. I've been a farmer my whole life. And even false prophets will lie, claiming they don't even have the background of a prophet. Look at verse 6. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Why would false prophets have wounds on them? Because it was very common if you worship gods other than the God of Israel, you would have cut marks on your body, your arms, your chest, between your arms, on your chest, on your back. Why? Because Usually, false prophets or prophets of other gods would cut themselves to show to their God how serious they are to try to get their prayers answered. You remember it happened whenever um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you remember that story? Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's the one true prophet of God, 450 prophets of Baal, and they both set up an altar and pray to see which God answers the fire. The one that does is the, is the real God. And if you remember, the 450 prophets of Baal went first, and they prayed nothing happened, prayed nothing happened. So they began to cut themselves. And the blood that would drip on the altar would show Baal how serious they were about their request, that they're actually bleeding for the request. And he would see that they're bleeding for it and would answer. They cut themselves, blood fell on the altar, and he still didn't answer. So false prophets usually had cut marks on them. At different times where they had cut themselves, hoping to appease the gods to get their prayers answered. So, the last days, false prophets will be so rejected and killed if someone appears to have cut marks on them. Someone will ask, where did you get those wounds on your back, my friend? Oh, oh, uh, we, we roughed house at a friend, we, just some rough housing at, at a house of a friend of mine, and it happened. You know, kind of like today, someone may say, oh, I bumped into a door to try to cover what really happened. 
It's going to happen in that day with false prophets because they're going to see marks upon them that go all the way back to the false prophets in the Old Testament. Now, does this verse refer to the wounds of Jesus? Probably not. There are some theologians that have looked at this and say, what are these wounds on your back? And they try to make it a reference to Jesus, the wounds that he took from his lashings, the 39 lashes on his back, that his back was exposed bare, and then as he went to the cross. But grammatically in Hebrew, it really doesn't, it really doesn't back that up, nor does it really look like that it refers to that passage at all in the New Testament. So some scholars try to stretch it. I don't think it's referring to Jesus' wounds. I think it's talking about the false prophets, how they will be rejected. And God once and for all will heal idolatry in the land of Israel. But if you remember, throughout the Old Testament, what was one of the promises God made? I will eventually heal your idolatry. I'll heal it. You keep going back to those false gods, and I keep saying what a mistake it is. You keep being punished for it, but one of these days... I am going to heal your idolatry for good. And here it is. In the last day, the land will not tolerate it and not put up with it. Unclean spirits, false prophecies, and idolatry will be removed from the land. Now let's look at the verses 7 through 9, and we'll close. Letter D on your outline, the shepherd will be struck. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Stop right there. We'll do the last two verses before we close. Look at verse 7 for a moment. Did you notice in your Bible anything different starting in verse 7? Does your Bible now look like it's in a poem form, prose, rather than a narrative? That's because it is. That's because now Zechariah switches to a poem or a song. So imagine he's prophesying. You're the people. You're listening. You're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah comes along after 18 years of you having stopped. He tries to encourage you to keep going, that Israel's best days are ahead of it, not behind it. And he's prophesying to you, and he's telling you what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, he breaks out into song or starts quoting a poem. And that's exactly what happens in verse 7. And the poem now starts talking about a different motif, the motif of a shepherd again. If you remember back in chapter 11, two chapters earlier, the entire chapter was a motif about a shepherd. There were three shepherds, wailing shepherds. Remember he was role-playing, chapter 11, the wailing shepherds, the evil shepherd, which is probably the Antichrist, and the good shepherd, which is Jesus. Now he is again referring to the shepherds. He refers back to a time period in Israel Israel would be scattered among the nations because her rejection of the good shepherd. So you can see he's kind of going back and forth between Jesus' second coming and his first coming. Verse 1, his first coming, died on the cross. Verses 2 through 6, the second coming. Now verses 7 through 9, his first coming. 
So that's kind of what makes sometimes Zechariah so confusing. What's he talking about? But now he's talking about Jesus' first coming and his crucifixion. Notice the first thing he said here, God is the one speaking. And God personifies an object. He's talking to the sword. That is, in Hebrew, what's called an apostrophe. Not the apostrophe like we have in English. An apostrophe in Hebrew is where you speak to an object like it's a person. Like you talk to a tree or you talk to a rock or you... Here is God's talking to a sword. And he's telling the sword, Oh sword, go strike my shepherd. What's he talking about? Jesus. A sword is personified and, and commanded as an instrument of a violent death. Go execute my shepherd, the good shepherd. His cross, the crucifixion. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Notice how he describes Jesus. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Against the man who stands next to me. So God described the shepherd as one very close to him. In fact, the Hebrew word is used several times uh, throughout the Old Testament. It means side by side as an equal. It's closer than a friend. Closer than a relative. Leviticus 6.2, Leviticus 18.12 uses the same word to describe someone closer than a friend, closer than a family member. Who is standing next to God, closer than a friend, closer than a family member? Who is his equal? Jesus. Okay, Mormons. Okay, Jehovah Witnesses. Those of you who say Jesus is not equal to God. What about Zechariah 13, 7? Sure is he's equal. In fact, Dr. Unger, Merrill Unger, says this verse is one of the most significant verses in all the Old Testament showing the deity of Christ, showing that Jesus is God's equal. I was visiting with uh, uh, some Mormons that were sitting in, in uh, Freddy's, eating a Freddy's burger, and just minding my own business. I'm always minding my own business. And two Mormons came up to me and says, you have time if I share, we share a quick message with you? Sure. So they started sharing their quick message with me about, about Mormonism. And I said, so do, do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus was God? Oh, no, no. He wasn't God? No. So Mormons, Jehovah Witness, there are those belief systems that don't believe Jesus is God. But what about this where he stands there as my equal? And he tells the sword, God does strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. So that shows us that the cross is God's doing. 
Jesus' death was God's doing. He gave the command to execute Jesus. It wasn't the Romans. Jesus was no victim of circumstance. Jesus was not at the mercy of a political group or military power. It was the planned and ordained work of God, prophesied by Zechariah, prophesied by Isaiah. God put Jesus to death. The Romans didn't. Why would God put his own son to death? He didn't just allow the Romans to do it. He did it. Why? He loved you that much. He loved you that much. He could have said, sorry, you sinned. Punishment for your sins, hell. See ya. But he loved you so much, according to the New Testament, that he was willing to sacrifice his own son so you could be with him in eternity. How special must you be? And I must be. For God to give the command to execute Jesus. But in that execution was victory, not Satan's triumph, because the resurrection was our triumph and God's victory. The Apostle Paul describes all this, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. He said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So according to Paul, God the Father and Jesus the Son were working together at the cross. And although Jesus was treated as an enemy of God, he was not an enemy of God. Jesus was doing the most holy work he ever did when he bled and died on the cross. Because God the Father and Jesus the Son were at work. And then he says, strike the sheep. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Do you remember hearing that another time? That exact same phrase? Matthew 26, Mark 14, both record the same event. Jesus is about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And remember, the disciples are starting to pick up on the fact, uh-oh, I think they're going to come to arrest Jesus. Something's about to go down. And, and if you remember, the disciples and Peter primarily will follow you. And Jesus says, no. Zechariah said, strike the shepherd and the sheep is, sheep is scattered. No, no, we'll follow you to death. No. Zechariah said, strike the sheep, the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And they came to arrest him. And the Bible says, all the disciples forsake him, forsake, forsook him and fled. So Jesus was quoting Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That is exactly what happened? Disciples all forsook him and fled. And at the cross, it was only women who were watching, and Peter was watching from a distance. Nobody was there. John was there with Mary, and that was it. Notice the last phrase, verse 7 I will turn my hand against the little ones. What is it talking about? We don't really know. Two options, two theories. It could be that the little ones are the disciples that scattered and fled. And God turned his hand against them and they, they forsook him. Or it could be talking about the Jews in the tribulation at the second coming. 
It could be either, and there are theories on both sides, but since it's in the context of the first coming, I kind of lean by context that it's talking about the disciples. Because in Luke, Jesus called the disciples little ones. So I think it may be a reference to the disciples more so than the Jews in the tribulation. Look at verses 8 and 9. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name. I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Just to confuse you further, now it appears like he's talking about the second coming again. Verses 8 and 9. It appears that way. Because it appears he's talking about at the end times during the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews will be killed and perish. One-third of the Jews will remain, but go through the fire, go through the tribulation. And out of that, if you read Revelation into it, it appears like the one-third, the 144,000 Jews that are saved in the tribulation, will survive out of that one-third that survives the tribulation. We are told in Revelation, as we saw in our study uh, several months ago, on Wednesday night, we are told that during the tribulation, there will be a large number of Jews killed, mass genocide of Jews, unlike the Holocaust, even worse, Jews that will be killed. Here, he says, two-thirds of all Jews will perish. One-third will remain, but go through the fire, go through the tribulation, and out of that one-third then, for 144,000 of them will call upon my name. They will say, the Lord is my God. And I will answer them and say, you are my people. They'll call upon the Lord for forgiveness in the tribulation time. That's what appears verses 8 and 9 are talking about. So interplay between first and second coming sometimes gets confusing. But a powerful chapter, especially verse 7, powerful chapter, what happened on the cross and what God did through Jesus to cleanse us and to wash us from our sins. The fountain that was opened that cleansed us from sin and uncleanness. We'll not meet next Wednesday night, but two weeks from tonight we'll start chapter 14. This talks primarily about the second coming and some very interesting things that are going to happen physically around Israel, around Jerusalem, uh, whenever Jesus comes back and returns for the second time. So we'll talk about that, the coming day of the Lord in chapter 14. If you have any questions, feel free to ask me afterwards or email me. Be glad to respond to them. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, I want to thank you tonight that in looking at chapter 13, I thank you first and foremost, God, that you loved us enough to execute this good shepherd on our behalf. And through him that a fountain was opened for our cleansing and our forgiveness, I'm thankful for that, that in Christ we can be forgiven and have a relationship with you. So thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in the person of Jesus. God, continue to direct us. Help us to be faithful to you regardless of what culture looks like and society looks like and what they believe. God, help us to remain faithful to you, faithful to your word, following exactly what you've told us. God, help us to do so in the name of Jesus, even this week. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.